Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with another member of our community sharing the fascinating stories of their life, career successes, and challenges that touch us emotionally and teach business and life lessons that can give us, and quite often other people in our lives, some information that can be of help to us all. Today's episode is once again brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. I'm Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Jeff Henley, who had an illustrious professional career, most recently a member of Oracle's Board of Directors as Vice Chairman, having previously served as chairman. It's been a wonderful career, but before we hear the professional achievements, let's talk about the life that got him there, starting in Phoenix, Arizona. Jeff, take us on your journey. Well, thanks. It's an honor to be here. Pleasure to tell my story. I was born right towards the end of World War II. My dad had been one of the first fighter pilots that entered the war and did his sorties in North Africa. Flew P-38, got the Silver Star, lots of those kinds of things, shot a few planes down, and came back and was in training other pilots at Williams Field in Phoenix, Arizona. And so I was born at Luke Field, which I think is still there. I've been off and on on business to Phoenix, but it's obviously a much bigger place than it was in 1944 when I was born. And then after the war was over, like most people, my dad came back into civilian life, and my sister was born in Long Beach in 19, late 1945. My dad got into insurance selling like a lot of the GIs, went back to college. But after a couple of years, he really wanted, decided he wanted to make a career in the service. So he went back as a captain, which he had left as. We were stationed, uh, I don't remember this, but my sister and I, my brother was born at March Air Force Base out in Riverside, very close here, and it is still here today, March Air Force Base. And shortly after my brother was born, a few months after that, my dad took hardship leave. And so in those days, I don't know what the rules are today, but you had to go do overseas duty. And if you took your family, you did two or three years. And if you did hardship, you didn't take your family, but you got it over within a year. So my dad opted to do hardship duty in Saudi Arabia and tragically was piloting a bomber with eight people. And they crashed in a sandstorm in the Persian Gulf. And years later, I really heard what I thought was the real story, and that is that there were eight people, my dad was a pilot, and there were six parachutes, so somehow they didn't get the right count. So five of the guys parachuted out, and they were found, and my dad and two others, they never found the plane, they never found my dad. The hardest part for me is never knowing my dad. Kind of a strange thing, my life would have been a lot different had I grown up moving around on you know Air Force bases like you do as kids. And How old were you at the time, Jeff? I was three years old. Sister was two. My brother had just been born a couple months. So none of us knew our dad. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So, I mean, I, I never felt over the years that I needed a father. The most haunting thing, I think, is that you just never knew him. 
You, you, never, you never knew who he was. Because we were in Southern California, my mother had been raised in Southern California. It was logical for us just to stay in Southern California. So we moved to Long Beach, and then my mother bought a home in Downey, California, in 1949. So I was five or close to five years old, and I think I was four and a half. It was interesting. My, my mother, her parents never owned a home. She never owned a home. The only reason we could buy a home was because my dad had sold insurance, as I mentioned. He had an insurance policy. So when he got back into the, the Air Force, we got veterans benefits growing up, but we also got an insurance payment that allowed my mom to buy a, buy a home in, in Downey. So grew up in Southern California, 10 years in Downey, and then moved to La Habra, California, the edge of Orange County, and did high school there. It was how I would have grown up would have been unbelievably different because in the military, it's quite common to move around, not just internationally, but domestically. And so growing up, I had a phenomenal mom who recently passed away a couple of years ago in her, in her early 90s. She raised the three of us. We certainly weren't on welfare. We certainly, but like a lot of people, we didn't have a lot. And we, of course, didn't know any different. And so the way you, you grew up is you worked. I mean, you had... I mowed lawns, got to junior high school, I babysat, washed cars, you know, whatever it took to get pocket money, you know, so you could do things. I think it's true of most people. You never knew what you didn't have. And so for us, it was, it was a great life. We had a 1,400-square-foot home, and uh, my mom um, had a shared a bedroom with my sister. Uh, my brother and I shared a bedroom. We just had a delightful life as kids, you know, played sports, little league, you know. Did all the kinds of things that, that kids do growing up. So Well you just kinda of play out in the street as as well as you as you do play organized sports at those times. Yeah. It, actually we are we had a little larger than normal lot, so we actually could play in our front yard. It Fantastic. Was, it was big enough so we didn't have to play in the street, you know. And you start those jobs, Jeff, not because and it's happened in almost every podcast. Not because you wanted to do something. It was out of necessity. If you wanted to get a new glove, if you wanted to get course, a yeah. pair of sneakers or whatever it might be, you had to go out and, and earn a little pocket money to do stuff like that. Sure. And, of course, it was very natural. And Everybody else everybody in the neighborhood else, was doing exactly the same thing. Everybody else did it. You know, exactly. So you had a good friend who was a paper boy. And he had an afternoon route. Back in those days, the, the mirror was the afternoon newspaper. And so I used to help him. I didn't, it wasn't my route, but a lot of times I'd go out and we'd make up the papers and drive them around on our bikes and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, uh, everybody was kind of in the same boat. Nobody was starving, but nobody had, I never traveled outside other than Texas, which I can talk about. But other than to see my relatives in Texas, I never... I was never on the East Coast. I never went to outside of California until I was out of college. Whereas our kids today, they're, you know, they're world travelers all over the place. So it was a kind of a small world, very safe, very secure, very, uh, very nice life. And what strength your mom yeah. had. Because and now she went to work to support the family. But, I mean, she was... This is a traumatic experience to have had to go through yeah, oh. three young children. And now, but as you said, that's life at that point, and you have to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. She was a true survivor, wonderful mother, later grandmother. Never, I never saw her 
complain about anything. She just moved on. She didn't ever, unless you ask her, talk a lot about the past. She just was uh, very focused on us as kids and then figuring things out as we went along. So Well, and also the life lesson, not a victim. She oh, just for sure. oh, certainly for sure. went on and, and showed great strength, which I'm sure bodes well for life lessons that you learned. The Greatest Generation book, you know, by Tom Brokaw. I mean, she really was, that was so typical of her and that generation. You know, she grew up in the Depression, went to the war. She worked in a factory for the war munitions, um, you know, did all those kinds of things. So I think people in that era, they were just tough people. You, they weren't used to having a lot. And, you know, most women, my mom didn't go to college. Uh, they were very basic people, but they really were tough. They were really realistic, pragmatic, tough people, never complained. And I think that rubbed off on all of us. You know, we never, we honestly never felt like we were missing anything. And they certainly didn't teach us because they didn't feel that they were entitled and they taught us that same sort of lesson, too, that you have to earn what you're going to get. You had no choice. My, my, my mom didn't have any money, you know. So and she worked. She was a bookkeeper in a hardware builder supply business for many years. So now you're getting involved in sports. You're having a good time. You're going to school. What happens then? I was the oldest, my sister, brother. We were all good students. I give my mother credit for that. When we were young, you didn't, people didn't have money in those days, as you know. So she took us to the library. So every week we'd get into her 1947 Pontiac or something, and, and we'd go to the store, we'd go to the library, get our books, and then go home and read them all. And, and she worked with us on our homework until, until we got into like junior high school. And I think some of the arithmetic now became math, and it, she wasn't able to help us that much. But but reading, spelling, all those kind of things when we were growing up, she was just... So I think we had innate intelligence problems. But I mean, her helping us and making sure that we did our homework and studied and read for enjoyment and that stuff, that was really, really important. And all of us enjoyed sports. So my brother and I, my sister, we all liked to play sports. I learned about the Peter Principle. So in grammar school, I was a sports star. I was a all-league baseball little leaguer. Got into junior high school, I couldn't hit a curveball. So I got into Babe Ruth League, that was it. That's when I topped out as a baseball player. I went a little longer in basketball. I got to high school in football. But at every level, uh, I sort of found the point where, you know, stepping up to that next level, I wasn't good enough. I still enjoyed sports, but I wasn't good enough. I was, I was, I was a pretty good tennis player, so I played high school tennis. I did do that. But we were all... Um, we all loved sports. My mother loved sports. So we, you know, we would listen to the radio before we had TV and then TV later on, but uh, we followed the, the old, um, before the Dodgers came out, the LA Angels and the Hollywood Stars, if you know, of Southern California. So all of our life, and until that last weekend when my mother was in the hospital dying, there she was watching a UCLA basketball. So I think my mother, I don't know, maybe she got, got us going on sports. So it was a big deal in our family, following sports, competing. I went through all this, and then I um, decided, had to make the decision where to go to college. And of course, again, the people, all of our people my age, we all remember this. Nobody looked at 510 colleges and all that. Uh, so I, I decided that uh, because of my dad, I maybe I should go to the Air Force Academy. I applied and uh, was accepted. And I think whether I 
was truly qualified. I don't know because I think I was, but because I was a, a son of a veteran, I'm sure I got some degree of preference. So I remember I applied to one other school, UC Santa Barbara, which I had never seen, but it sounded like a good place as sort of my backup. And I remember going over to March Air Force Base, again, where my brother had been born all these years. And so the Air Force, to go to the Air Force, I had to go past physical. So I remember going over there. In the end, I couldn't pass the physical. So I could do all the things they asked me to do, but I had developed uh, ulcerative colitis in high school, which is a chronic disease. It's not a big problem. I've used medication. But for the Air Force Academy, they considered that a chronic illness. And so for health reasons, I couldn't go to the Air Force Academy. So again, a huge turning point in my life, because had I gone into the military, who knows where that would have led me. So I ended up saying, well, I guess I'll go to Santa Barbara, because that's the only place I applied. My mom drove me up that fall, I guess, up September of 1962. And I remember driving up there with her and going down this, what's called Ward Memorial Highway. And then there was the beach and there's the university. And I remember saying to myself, I think this is going to work out. <laughs> but you know, there's just these things that happen in your life. And I wasn't unbelievably disappointed that I couldn't go to the Air Force. I said, okay, well, I got it. A uh, little concerned about the illness I had, you know, when how that would settle down because I'd read stories about how it could shorten your life. So anyway, I ended up in Santa Barbara, had a wonderful time there. My sister followed me, my brother followed me. And going back to the money thing, the only way we could go away to college was because of the Veterans Administration. As veterans' children, we were given a relatively small stipend to go to college. It was not much, but it was enough that I could now go away to college. So a combination of that, my mother had no money, working every day in the summer, because as soon as school got out, I went every summer. And then I worked during college, washing dishes at a, at a girl's dorm and all that stuff. It was, you know, we were very fortunate, again, that uh, we were able to go away to college. A lot of kids say, so one of the things I have supported for years is a scholarship foundation where we help sponsor, you know, a number of kids going to college every year. Because a lot of kids in Santa Barbara, even though people think it's affluent, there's a lot of non-affluent, lower-income people. It's one of the things that I felt I was lucky enough to get to go away to college, uh, and financially, some kids can't do it. So that's one of the things I we've done, my wife and I've done for years. It was a wonderful social experience as college is. You know, it was about 5,000 kids when I went, just it really started cranking up. It was about nine when I left. And today, the enrollment's about 25,000 at UC Santa Barbara. It was a wonderful period. And then after that, I ended up going directly to UCLA for an MBA in finance, which you could do in those days. In more recent times, you have to go get work experience before you can get an MBA, which I think is a good idea. I didn't really get a lot out of the time I spent at UCLA because I don't think I've had enough business experience to really fully and get it all. But somehow it all worked out. And then I started my career. When you talk about, and we talk about in these podcasts, twists and turns that get us to a certain place. When you look back, your dad's untimely passing, then the Air Force Academy and the physical, this really did change or very possibly changed your whole path. Of course, I don't question but now, when you got into school, though, were you focused on a career in economics? Was that something that attracted you at even at that, at that early age? A good question. I was attracted because it was the closest thing to a business degree. Santa Barbara didn't have a business school or business degree. It didn't have an accounting degree. 
economics is still the most popular undergraduate major at Santa Barbara because we've never had a, a business degree there. So people kind of opt to that. And so I took a little bit of accounting and other things, but mostly it was just because it seemed the most business-oriented sort of major I could do. I had friends that took political science or different things. And in the end, I don't, I'm not that sure that any of that mattered really, but we all ended up going into business. And But know. it was a somewhat pragmatic. Decision. Oh, it's very pragmatic, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I was going to say about the goods and bads, so when I developed ulcerative colitis, it kept me out of the Air Force. It also got me a 4F designation. My draft card said I couldn't be drafted. That turned out for the positive. Uh, better not to have gone to Vietnam, I think, than had. Obviously, I would have if I had been draftable. So there's always some things, silver linings and things, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. And it allowed you to have, from your educational background, go right into business and not have any bus- any interruption at that right, time. Right, right. Now you graduate from, you get your MBA at UCLA, and now you're out in the business world. I was living in Southern California, you know, at the time, and I took a job with Hughes Aircraft Company, and they, they had an MBA finance program. So they, the idea would be it was a, you'd rotate through each six months to four different parts, different divisional finance jobs, internal audit. So it felt to me like it might be a way to start my career. Finance seemed like a logical thing to me. I did that, and then I took a permanent position. And my first job as a supervisor for a bunch of people down in Newport Beach at their cable business. That started things off. I averaged for my first couple of companies about every three years. And then I, in this case, I took a job. I left Hughes because my former boss in the internal audit department moved to a company to become a CFO and asked me to be a division controller. Did that for three years of another company. And then I moved to Silicon Valley in 1972. And the reason that was voluntary, it was just the belief that I needed to get international experience. As a young guy, I felt like it's a big world. Wouldn't it be good to get some international experience? So in those days, the companies I worked for didn't have that. Went to Corn Ferry as a young kid and networked and got interviewed at two semiconductor companies up in Silicon Valley and ended up taking a job as a division controller at Fairchild, which back in the day was a spawning ground where all the guys from Intel came through Fairchild. Uh, Charlie Spork went to National Semiconductor. And it was the third largest semiconductor company. It was actually fourth because IBM was the biggest semiconductor company as I quickly learned. But they never sold their stuff. They just put it in their own gear. But Texas Instruments, Motorola, and then Fairchild were the number three. And there was this little company called Intel where all these ex-Fairchild guys gone. So it turns out they ended up doing pretty well over the years. Absolutely. My boss at Fairchild was a division, was the corporate controller. He became CFO at Memrex. And so I agreed to go over there. And then he moved as the CFO of a company called Saga Corporation, a big food service and restaurant company. I moved there. So, so far, I've only made one voluntary move after I started working because former people took me and gave me bigger positions at other companies. And then he left uh, in about six months, and I became CFO of Saga at, I don't know, age 34. It was 50,000 people. Uh, It was domestic, but it was uh, big enough that we had professional people doing the corporate controllership, public reporting, treasury tax, because I knew none of that stuff. So it was a terrific opportunity to sort of become a full-fledged CFO and sort of learn on the job what what a treasury department does, what a tax department does. So, and at a very young age. Yeah. But also up in that 
up until that time, Jeff, it seems that your ability to network really helped you in moving from place to place. Obviously, people saw in you some skill sets that they wanted to have with them as they moved on. That's an important part of a young person getting into business. It it is. I think back, if you go back in those days, 60s, 70s, a lot of people didn't switch jobs that often. It wasn't as common. And I always say, it wasn't my plan to switch that many jobs. For me, it was just usually former bosses that, like me, felt I would be good in some new role. And so it wasn't me as much as being antsy and you know looking for some new job every three years. That's just kind of the way it worked out. At Saga, I was there seven years. And it was tremendous, a public company. So I learned all the skills. And then we were acquired in a hostile takeover by Marriott. So now I had to find for the first time, uh, well, second time now, I had to go figure out what I want to do next. I was now pretty skilled CFO, seven years of it. And the company had been a turnaround. It it was in trouble when I went there, as had Fairchild and Memrex. So I had developed sort of turnover skills, uh, turnaround skills, if you will and helping companies get back on their feet, make money, that kind of stuff. So I did that. So all that was up in the Bay Area. And so then in 1986, I decided to go back to Southern California and work for a character, a true character, named David Murdoch. People in Southern California may know of him. It's not Rupert Murdoch, it's David Murdoch. But David was a swashbuckling, Napoleonic. He's still alive, but he's in his 90s, and he's still working. And the idea was I was trying to, again, hone my skills. So this was the era of the Mike Milken uh, LBO days. And David had done some takeovers. And so I went up to be the CFO of all of his private 20 to 20 companies. But the pitch was that I would learn how to do takeovers. We'd go, and we did look at some. We never ended up doing anything significant. But I ended up turning around most of his little companies that he owned. So... I guess I got more experience doing that, but I didn't get any experience doing deals, really, which is kind of what I thought I was going to do. Uh, he was a very difficult person to work for. I would never recommend it. The good news is after you get through it, if you survive that, nobody else can be more difficult to work for than David. You know? <laughs> I decided to go back to the Bay Area and go to work for Oracle, which is, I've stayed there all those years now, partly because I like the idea of getting back into tech. David didn't have any tech stuff, you know. And I particularly, my kids were up there in the Bay Area, so, and, and my wife's kids too. It was a chance to get back, be a little more close to all of our kids and stuff like that. It all worked out, and again, it was a turnaround. Oracle was in deep trouble. It had big financial trouble, so I was a good fit for them. I had done turnarounds. I was now reasonably skilled guy as opposed to when I was younger. I didn't have so many. I was kind of learning my way, so I could bring in legitimate financial turnaround skills help the company get out of the financial stuff mess we were in at the time. In that era, too, I would think that a strong reputation in turning companies around, because many of them had now fallen down, that that, that had to be a skill set that you yeah. were in demand. No, no, I, I think so. I think that, and I had been in the tech industry, so I'd been in Fairchild. So here I, I had international experience. I had tech experience. I was seasoned. It was like mid, I'm trying to remember, mid 45, something like that. So I think it was a good fit. And when I went in, the average age of the company was like 28, 29 years old. So I was a senior citizen. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, kind of everybody was looking for me to like, what should we do differently? What should we do? You know, so it was, a, I definitely could bring some good experience to help them. 
And you talked before about we were raised by people who stayed in a job and got a gold watch at the end of 40 or 50 years. So that was the model then. You didn't follow that model at that time, and it really served you well. And I think to young people, too, you don't know who's watching you when you're doing a job when you're young. But you want to do the best job you can because if that person goes someplace else, they remember the people that were doing a good job for them. They take them with them or at least offer them opportunities. And then because of the wide range of places that you had, you learned different skill sets in each one of those. Now you're prepared for this opportunity when it presents itself at 45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I just celebrated my 29th year anniversary at Oracle. So I came in as CFO, and I did that for 13 years, and I became chairman for 10, and, and I'm vice chairman now because the founder, Larry, moved up from CEO to chairman. Uh, but um, I, it's an unusual job as chairman and vice chairman because I'm actually very busy. I go out and see customers. So running a board is not that big a deal. Uh, it's it really what I, how I spend all my, most of my time is, t- is talking to customers. And so it's been a, really a lot of fun. I mean, it's not really a financial job, but it's dealing with customers, hear, hearing their complaints, uh, hearing good things, telling them where we're going, what our strategy is, how we can help them, that sort of thing. It's been, gee, 15 years, 15, 16 years now since I have not been a CFO. I've just been chairman, vice chairman, and really sort of a customer ambassador. So it's been a great way to stay engaged, not fully retire, but still have more freedom to do a few other things and play a little more golf. Fortunately, I wouldn't want to be fully retired because I, I, I couldn't play golf every day. So, <laughs> You talked about working for Mr. Murdoch. It had to be almost the opposite working for Mr. Ellison. There's a guy named Max Mesmer who had just left David. And he, he had been a, a lawyer at Melvin Myers, and Max didn't get along with David. He left, and he was kind of doing what I was doing. And Max ended up going up and becoming the CEO to this day of Robert Half and Associates. Unbelievably successful. So when, and I never met Max until a couple of years ago. He's a member at Vintage, and I've always heard about him. And so I had a nice round of golf with him. We were both reminiscing about David. So uh, he just a, he's a contrarian, tough guy, huge risk. He was a real estate developer in his time, so he, lo- he lives on leverage, and just a very different guy. But just a very uh, difficult character to work for. And we always used to say how much more money he could have made if he'd been just a little more empathetic to his people. But I have to say, when the job opportunity came up with Larry, I mean, the, first of all, they're in trouble, and Larry's an entrepreneur. And I'm thinking, do I really want to go work for an entrepreneur again? And I met Larry once. I met him twice. And, and the board member, one of the board members who had known him for years, they, they convinced me what he was really like. Because I didn't, you'd never know, right, till you get there. Uh, but yeah, very different guy. Very different guy. Larry Larry's a, um, has a reputation of being a hard-nosed guy and that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is he's... As long as you perform, he's a, he's a terrific guy. Yeah, he makes tough decisions like anybody, but a uh, huge sense of humor that Murdoch didn't have. Smartest guy I've ever worked with, but I did have those reputations. I'd say about a month into the job, I said to myself, I have made for sure the best decision of my life. Uh, I'd learned in the tech industry that you have to have, I believe, technical leadership to survive the cycles. And so I, when I went, there were rumors that Larry was going to get canned. And I said, I'm not going there unless Larry stays. 
because, you know, he's a visionary and he seems to have learned from some of his mistakes that he made. And uh, that's the great thing about Larry. He's continued to grow, continued to evolve. And a lot of entrepreneurs sort of peter out. You know, you got to have to replace them or, or they want to replace themselves. They want to go retire. And it's been more than half my career working with Oracle, working with Larry. And it's been tremendous. But yeah, he's very different sort of guy. But I think all all entrepreneurs are different than than professional managers. I'm a professional manager. Uh, they they definitely are, they're willing to take risk. They're willing. They have a lot of confidence in themselves, and they just think differently. Larry's best friend was Steve Jobs. Not surprisingly, he's very good friends today with Elon Musk. So Larry, uh, I think, forms friendships, personal friendships, you know, with people that think differently. So I'd say that's a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, are good about seeing something in a different way of uh, a new opportunity, seizing upon it and that sort of thing. So, But I think that's the biggest thing about Larry. He doesn't always follow conventional wisdom. He, he certainly listens, but he, he looks ahead and says, no, you know, I don't believe that. I don't. That may be what's happening now, but that's not what we should be doing going forward. And so I think... That's one thing I think that sets entrepreneurs apart sometimes is they have an ability to think a bit differently and veer off the standard course that, you know, when you're doing really well, then he has a new idea and we sort of set Stella a new idea before other people think about it. So, Well, it seems like, from my experience, they're all different, but they're the same. Uh, they have similar. their own idiosyncrasies, of course. But the visionary aspect yes. of this, what they they see things that other people don't see. Now it it's very busy up there. Look at the track record. That's usually the one that speaks. They have a report card every day. And with Larry Ellison, it seems like, and it's not true because it's impossible to be right all the time. But we think about how the Midas touch things that he touches because of this visionary skill, but most importantly about the people that he has working with him. Because here's the visionary, but somebody has to implement a lot of those strategies and a lot of those business decisions. Here in the desert, just some of the things that he's been involved with, the tennis tournament. Yeah, he has a lot of interest. Now, when I met him, he had what his interest was trying to get Oracle wealth. His, <laughs> all of his wealth was tied up in Oracle. It wasn't nearly what it is today, right? So the market cap of the company was $750 million in 1991. And, but yeah, over the years, my goodness, Larry's involved in lots of things, lots of things that people don't have any, wouldn't have any idea. People know about Lanai, people know about the, the tennis tournament. There's many other things. He's a very interesting guy. So he's grown just personally in terms of other interests, other things, but his, his real interest is still Oracle. Uh, I never said the worst thing people could have is Larry lose interest in Oracle and retire. But he's not going to. It's his baby. As long as there's uh, competition, there is plenty. <laughs> he's a competitive guy. He's still working hard, but he obviously doesn't do it 100%. He's got lots of other interests that he's involved in. He still has a huge command of what the key decisions that need to be made at Oracle, and he makes them. And then he's got a good team. You know, like most anybody, you grow a big business, you've got to have a good, good team around you. So... Is it true, just as an aside, he, he owns Porcupine Creek? Uh-huh. He does not play golf? He's, he likes tennis. He took up tennis a lot more seriously in, in the last, I would say, 15 years, playing tennis, right? 
I mean, he always played, but I think he, they became a huge passion of his. So he added three courts at Porcupine when he bought Porcupine. But no, he's not a golfer. But he you know, appreciates the beauty of it and all that sort of thing. And he loves to see people enjoy themselves and that sort of thing. So he's redone every hole at Porcupine. It's a spectacular property. He's redone the Nicholas course. Appreciates golf, but yeah, he's... He says, it's just not, not me. I'm not going to go out there and spend three or four hours killing myself mentally, you know? Jeff, I know that family is big to you. Tell me a little bit about your family. Yeah, so I married Judy um, in 1987, and we had gone together for five years. So we were both divorced, met each other where we worked. Again, in today's world, I met the man I worked. She worked in my finance department. She didn't work for me, but in today's world, you couldn't do that anymore, right? So, uh, and she had four children. We were the Brady Bunch, except they didn't all come live with us like like that. So today, times go on. Our youngest is my son, who's forty. So we have seven adult children who are forty and up. We have twelve grandchildren. Most of them are on the West Coast, at least. Two of them grew up with their families in Park City, and then one one of them moved to Vegas. Her oldest son moved to San Antonio a couple of years ago. The rest of them are in California. So we've always had been reasonably close together at least and we have um, most of them get out here once a year to the desert and then they prefer to come to Santa Barbara which is our main home where we have a tennis court you you name it it's a huge property and it's got everything you'd want to do and they like the town is fun the summer so we typically get more family events there than we do here a number of them come out here every year they they go to the tennis tournament a couple of them like golf stuff like that so it's a big family with that many kids, I mean, there's always something going on, good and bad. <laughs> so. Well, just to get them all together is a monumental task. If well, that... we have a big property in two homes in Santa Barbara. Yeah, for many years, we did a 4th of July party, and my brother, my mom, sister, others, and those are very memorable things. When you can put everybody up on the property, and they can spend three or four days together, it's quite it's a very memorable. Jeff, with everything you've accomplished in business... What drives you today? Everybody has to find something to stay busy, I think. I mean, I'm not somebody that's just going to sit around and read novels all day long or cook all day. So for me, like a lot of people, uh, I think you've got to stay active. So fortunately for me, I can still play a meaningful role at Oracle with our customers. So that's been great. If I didn't have that, then I would have to find something to spend more of my time with. So I have... Not been interested in getting on boards of directors, so I've tried that a few times. He said, I don't want to do that. I'm on some nonprofits. So i was been involved in the Boys and Girls Clubs for 35 years, so both at the national level, at the local level. Been very involved with my university at UC Santa Barbara when I moved back. Uh, so we've been large donors of money and time. I think, you know, for me, giving back to some degree, you know, and we obviously have been fortunate enough to make enough money. We give money to lots of things, but I give, I've given a lot of time to Boys and Girls Clubs and to my university over the years. It's kind of a mix, you know, of things. Yeah, I think if I were fully retired, I don't think I could be fully retired. So I would, I'd find something to do. It wouldn't have to be a business, but it had to be something where I'm... Your mind active. Stan. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important for everybody, to be honest with you, but we can all do it in different ways, you know. So, but I'm fortunate to be able to still be associated with a company I know really well and still have a lot of investment in that company, 
which diversified over the years, but is by far my single still investment. So I have a financial reason, I guess, to stay interested in the company. But really, it's not the money. It's it's just the fun of working with the people in the company, working with the customers, competing, helping to compete with, you know, a lot of really good competitors and that sort of thing. So you mentioned the Boys and Girls Club that you've been involved with for a long time or have been involved with for a long time. It's a great organization. It's certainly assisted a lot of kids over the years. What brought you to that particular organization? My brother and I went to the Boys Club, boys, not girls, Boys Clubs in the late 50s, early 60s in La Habra. Uh, but I had lost track of them. And then my, what got me into it was at Saga, my boss, the CEO, came to me one day and said, the local clubs asked me to you know, be on their board. I, I don't got the time to do this, but it'd be great for you. It's a learning experience. So I got involved at the club there in Menlo Park, East Menlo Park, black neighborhood there. And well, I was a financial guy, but I, I quickly learned they were dead broke, you know, they're pretty small, struggling, and many of these nonprofits are. So I became the president of the board within a year or two. We opened a second clubhouse. I got the founder of Mervyn's department stores to donate money to build a club and that sort of thing. So I, I got involved in that. And then um, Merv asked me to get involved in the regional organization. They asked me to be going on the national board. So I've been involved at the national level. For, I just retired in December. I'm 75, but I'm still involved in the local clubs and much less so here in La Quinta, but uh, or excuse me, Coachella, the Coachella clubs, much more involved in Santa Barbara. And I live here a number of months. The clubs here in Coachella Valley are very stable. They do a great job, very proud of them. I go visit a club every year, and I, I know the director and all that. I give them a project called Brain Training, so I've given them grants through that here. But honestly, at a local level, my biggest money and time in the last 10 years or so has been in Santa Barbara, where, again, it's just like any business. It's all about the board and the CEO. And these clubs are all independently run. So the clubs in Denver are or have their own board, the club in Coachella, wherever you are, we have over 4,000 clubs. And unfortunately, it's a very distributed thing. And so the quality of boards and management varies by region, right, by city. So it's something I've just stayed with for a long time because I know the effect it has. If you go into a club, and I know Bighorn Charities gives the clubs money, that's great. But there's so many things that help kids. But for me, at least, it's just something I've stayed with because I know what I believe in it. But just so many kids that need something to do after school. It's the biggest network in the world, in the United States, for kids between age 6 to age 18. So we help millions of kids and, you know, makes a difference. And most kids that go to any degree will tell you that more than half the kids say it, it saved their life. And so if you, if you go to enough of these clubs and you really watch what's going on, it is unbelievable. The problems we have with gangs and with all the bad influences on kids living in a lot of these, around these clubs. So the, the, the clubs can really, really save a person's life in the sense, get them, get them on the right path to get out. I've gotten pretty addicted on over years. It's pretty hard to walk away from it. But the national level, I said, you know, at some point it's time. But I, I don't think I'd ever walk away from the local involvement that I have. Yeah, I was surprised it wasn't as something more centralized. To your point, it's really a community yeah. project. Yeah, yeah. It's, there are some nonprofits that are very centralized, but the Boys and Girls Club model for more than 100 years has always been local governance boards. And the national provides programming. They provide some money. 
We do a lot with the government. The National got has a big government program for veterans, uh, you know, Air Force bases, Army bases, stuff like that, Navajo Indians. So the National plays a little bigger role in some of those. But in the local community level, typically, it's, um, it's, it's all self-governance. And you mentioned in passing a, a project. Yeah, b- brain training. Brain training. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I got involved in this, gosh, more than 10 years ago. So um, my uh, gardener in Santa Barbara, who's lived there 20 years, he's always been my gardener, and he, I learned a few number of years ago that his, his son uh, was not doing well in school. And so my housekeeper told me this. He never told me that. So I found out that he was in special ed, and he was, I think, in third or fourth grade at the time. So I, I asked him about it, and I found out the name of the special ed teacher that he was going, he was doing in his school district, and so I called her and found out that she said he's got a serious auditory problem, and if you could help him, you should send him to a private school, and her daughter had gone to this person, not full-time, but but this kid was so bad. It took him so long to process something, right, so he couldn't step in school, so they, it, the way it's special ed works in public it's unfortunate. They just move along, you know. So he was moving along, and he could test that out as like the worst percentile of a kindergartner. Here he was in fourth grade. So we put him in the school uh, full time for a year, and then the second year half time, and then he was back. And he got out of special ed, graduated uh, a year ago. He's in the Marines now. Uh, wants to be a teacher. Great kid, but he had a severe brain speed problem. I guess he had an auditory problem on top of it. But what I figured out was that there's a lot of kids in the Boys and Girls Clubs community. These these parents don't have a clue. There's no way, and the schools aren't going to help them. So we set up this brain training program to work with the kids in in the school, I mean, at the club. And we came, we've had a variety of techniques over the years. We started with computers, but basically it's the way it's getting kids' brain processing speeds to dramatically speed up. So the way you speed up is you get a lower and lower number. So these kids, on average, we've kept all the records. We have thousands of kids we've done now. And they all follow a pattern. They're, most of them are 250. If they want to get above average, they've got to be down to like 40. And in 20 sessions, we typically can get almost all of them down below 40. So if you improve their brain processing speed, their ability to read, do math, and that sort of thing, goes way up, right? So we can typically move people up in a grade level one to one and a half years in 20 of these sessions. So been doing it for a long time, but it's it's not particularly scalable. It's expensive. My dream was to get this to scale up into many, many school districts. It's never, I've never, ever figured out how to do it for a variety of reasons. But anyway, I do about a thousand kids a year. And so it's, it's meaningful. These kids all end up doing much better at school and have a chance then to get to college, do other kinds of things. But if you don't get kids really early and get them performing at grade level, at least, the chances of them even getting through high school are pretty poor. And this is available through the Boys and Girls Club in Santa Barbara, is that? It, actually, we do Santa Barbara a little bit. We've done off and on Coachella, and that's part of the scalability problem. If you lose one of the people that does the teaching, then getting them replaced. But the, the biggest success has been a place called Oxnard, California, which is near Santa Barbara, near Ventura. We've had the one gal all these years. And so it, it ends up being she's she's a machine. She, she got promoted to run the whole 
uh, all the clubs in Oxnard, but she still that's, this is her pet project, so therefore it gets a lot of focus and part of why it's not scalable. But anyway, but it's 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 phenomenal what uh, these kids go on to do once they get their uh, brain processing speeds above average, not just normal. Uh, it's 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 incredible. So fascinating. Yeah. Who's had the greatest influence on your life? Well, certainly uh, my mother. For, for uh, outside of professional, but I mean, no, no the question. There's no close second. You know, when you when you you got mother like I had. I'd say professionally, I had one uh, guy in in finance that really was the biggest role model, if you will, for me. And this was the guy that a guy named Henry Montgomery, who was the CEO, the controller at Fairchild, where I went moved up to and then became the CFO at Memrex where I moved over to and then became the CFO of Saga. And so I had a number of years of mentorship and training for him. So he clearly is a finance person. He was by far the had the most longevity. He was very into training people and stuff like that. So I'd say professionally. And obviously I'd say because I've been involved with Larry for so long in terms of a business associate would be Larry, just very unusual character and very unique guy, so he's obviously had influence in me, and just in terms of trying to make me think a little, uh, be a little more creative at times. Not that I could ever be like Larry, but I think that's the mark of is the, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Remember the ads he ran, "Think Different." He had the Einstein thing. It's a hard time thinking out of the box, and that's something that most of us struggle with, I think. But uh, so working with Larry has helped me some degree, kind of look at things a little more creatively sometimes. So. Well, that's that left brain, right brain yeah. thing. We usually yeah. have a favorite side, and to branch out is important. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? I always look for people that are really dedicated and got to be reasonably bright, uh, but uh, it's it's being good team players, being people that want to learn, willing to learn, they're all different kinds of personalities. That's not really it. It's just really the people that want to want to win, want to be successful, want to do it on, on a, as a team kind of game. Because in in larger companies like Oracle, that's it is a lot of teamwork. You can't do this by yourselves. And you could be really good and brilliant guy, kid, person, guy or girl, but if you can't work as a team, you're not gonna you're not gonna really be very successful. I I think um, I didn't touch on this one. What are my sayings that I've give to graduation ceremonies where I've used this for the years. I didn't make it up. I can't remember where I heard it years ago, but the harder I worked, the luckier I got. And I still believe in that. You know, we're lucky enough at a place like Oracle or some of the other companies I work where you can attract, you know, really talented people, bright people, but that's not enough. I think the real mark of it is, you know, how dedicated, how hardworking and in, in larger groups, you got to be a team player. If you, you you can, there's lots of really smart people that are very devious people that just don't want to play team ball. So those are the people that don't last with me. Historically, I could always deal with somebody who maybe had uh, was a little bit inexperienced, but as long as they were willing to recognize that and willing to work on what they needed to improve upon, I, I was always willing to give you know cut them slack and uh, you know, obviously if they didn't get better or improve or whatever you you have to do something about that. But most people, if you get good people who are bright and want to be want to want to win, want to be successful, usually those things work out. It's not loyalty as much. I don't expect anyone to, if they get a better opportunity somewhere, they can go do that, of course. But it's really more while they're working for me, 
they want to be they they want to help the team win, want to help the company, but help the the groups that they're working with, and you know, be successful. So, what's your management philosophy? Oracle has like a lot of companies. We have all kinds of management training and technical training for the engineers and stuff like that. But my personal style, I think, is just always being open, direct, honest with people, and not a, and and lead by example. If, if the worst, I think the worst people leaders are the people that everyone knows they're full of shit and they're lying <laughs> and they're not they're not busting their ass. They want you want you to bust your ass, but they're not busting their ass, right? So I think leading by example, being straight up with people is kind of the, my management style. You have to be who you are. So I think people res- have respected me as a boss over the times, so respected me as a peer because they all knew who I was, what I was standing for and that I wasn't uh, you know, they could trust me. Right. So whether it's people you work with or with people that work for you or people you work for, I think the trust and the hard work, straightforward, just no bullshit, get it done. And, and as finance people, I think you sort of maybe that's one of the traits you have to learn. Uh, but I think any leader, no matter what function you're in, if you're the CEO of the company, whatever, people, all people have different styles. But to, to me, it's trust and honesty is is really critical. If you lose that, you just lose credibility. Nobody's going to put the extra effort in to kill themselves to make something happen if, if they don't trust you or if they don't feel like you're behind them and behind the, the, whole, the, good, the good of the organization. There's a common thread that runs through many of these podcasts, and that's one of them, is that you have to be willing to do whatever you're going to ask everybody else to do. Right. As it relates to this area... What first brought you and your wife to the desert? And then what was your first impression of when you first met R.D. Hubbard? Yeah, so the first time I can recall coming here was to a board meeting at the Vintage back when they were it was a very young club in those days. So I, it was when I was at Saga, I want to say it was 83 or 4 or something like that. And I think I think we really kind of enjoyed it, and then we used my my wife and I came down a couple times, um, stayed at La Quinta out there at the hotel. So just kind of we we both had taken up golf in like 1985. So and and if in the Bay Area it's rainy in the winter, so uh, just kind of got into that a bit. And then as our kids grew older and older, they don't want to be around us, you know. So we had more time to come down <laughs> by ourselves. We decided to buy homes. So we bought a home at, at um, Desert Horizons and didn't really know how much we would come down here, but just, so then we kind of decided we liked that. Kind of, it was kind of fun to come down on the weekends. And so we decided we, we should trade up a little bit. So we looked at Vintage, we looked at uh, Bighorn, and ended up for a variety of reasons picking Bighorn. So I don't think I met Hubbard till I joined. And then once I observed him or met him or watched him a little bit, you know, you realize he's kind of an interesting guy, you know. But I think he's, you know, I think most of us that have been members here, this is a second home for us. We don't want to be on board committees and stuff. So we like the idea of having a dictator, which is what Hubbard is, basically, you know, has been for years. And But I mean, that we all, I think you know that. That's what you're signing up for. And, uh, uh, you know, I feel like at Santa Barbara or where I've had, or the Bay Area where I was a member at Sharon Heights, those are a little more 
democratic. You know, you have board presidents every couple of years. But this is not what that is. But it works great here, I think, because people aren't here the majority of their time. So this is, uh, and I think his idea has always been uh, be the best, you know, be the best, uh, be unique. And so I think, um, you know, by and large, nobody's perfect, but he's definitely tried to do that. And I think he made a lot of unique decisions that have worked out for the clubs and all that kind of stuff. And the whole, the whole real estate thing, everything is, is it's, it's been well done. He's, he's not a typical, <laughs> he's not a typical president of the club that you would find uh, at most places. Right? Absolutely exactly. not. And, and as you touched on before, you've worked for a lot of strong personalities and you said before in, in this interview that you have to take input, and you should take input, but at some point, the business model that works probably best is when someone, one person, makes that final decision. Yeah, uh, I think it works for here. I, I think it's better, honestly, if you can get a, a dictator that, that, you, that you all believe they're making good decisions, by and large, right, to support. So it's, it's, I've seen it. It's kind of unique how it works here, but um, it's made sense for us. We've been members since 97, so 23 years. So, Last question for you. What advice would you give a 20-year-old Jeff Henley today? Yeah, and I occasionally talk to my kids as they grow up. Now my grandkids, I've got a few of them that have been leaving college and I don't think it ever changes. So I think it's always trying to tell, I always try to tell them, you know, uh, you know, that for, first of all, whatever job you take, it's, it's a crapshoot. So you, over the course of some few years, hopefully you'll start to get a sense for what you really want to do. And if you're lucky enough, you might really like the first job you get. So, but um, it's trying to figure out something you will find happiness with, something that you'll really enjoy doing because, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to be successful. So, so I think it's finding uh, that first, second, third, whatever job it is, whatever your career is, just finding out what, what makes you happy and gets you excited about going to work every day. And I've always said, try to figure out the, some of the newer industries, some of the newer things, because I think it's probably more opportunity. So I was, after I got out of Hughes, I really which was a aerospace company, you know, um, didn't ever appeal to me. And I never wanted to go to work for a big company. Again, I mean, a huge company like that or a huge giant company. Um, but, uh, and I worked at really small companies and then, you know, big, bigger companies. But so I said, I always tell kids, probably you're going to want to go try both, try something a little smaller, something a little bigger, the bigger, you might get more training, stuff like that. But I would say try to find an industry that, that you find attractive. You feel like you're something about the products or services that you like and then the particular work, uh, whatever that is, that you think you're going to really like. And, and um, um, you know, in today's world, don't, you don't have to stay there forever, but try to find something that's going to hopefully keep you from... Wanting to change jobs every year or something like that. So it's really fi finding something that you can be happy for because I don't believe anybody is going to be successful in a job unless they, they really enjoy it and they really want to kill, not kill themselves, but they really want to work really hard at it because they enjoy it. They feel it's, it's they're growing, they're contributing. 
I think young kids at 20 today, their work ethic is un unbelievably worse than ours, you know. Uh, the tools they have, all the other things are great, but um, they, I think that's one of the biggest problems with millennials and these people is they, well, they don't know what hard work is anymore, but it is what it is, right? So uh, they can make up for it by being smart and having a lot of good tools around them. And, um, but um, I, I, I think that uh, there is no perfect answer. So I have what granddaughter that, you know, is a year out. She already wants to change, right? So that's okay. But now she's hopefully learned enough that the next time she'll stick there longer and and uh, and do better. So, um, and I've we've we've really tried not to spoil our kids or our grandkids. I mean, they certainly have given them a lot more than I ever got. But I really think that's important too for kids that they their parents um, don't spoil them. They make them get out and um, find their way. Help help them obviously where they can, but. There's nothing like people getting some responsibility. And, and I tell kids today, I said, you know, it's really easy to want to just go travel and have a lot of fun. And by the time you hit 30, you've got nothing. And by the time you're 30, you will, you will, if you want a career, you'll never have it. You have to be willing to put in time in your 20s to build the skills, build the experience that then you can build a career. And by the way, you could then drop out, I guess, but you can't just sort of fool around in your 20s and then just wake up one day in your 30s and say, oh, well, I'm, now I really want to work. I really want to be successful. You, you, I, I just think it's rare that you could have ever formed the right habits uh, of work and discipline. Uh, so I just, just go find something that you think sounds interesting. If it's not, try something else, but uh, work hard at it. And, uh, and, and if you can, I've been fortunate uh, very few days of my life, I didn't want to go to work. Uh, and that's really good because I liked, I liked what I was doing. One or two bosses I didn't particularly like, but um, the, still enjoyed the job, still enjoyed the people around me, stuff like that. So, A question, the work ethic you brought up. Because to me, that's the thing that sets you apart. I mean, it, we talked about it with other people, first person in, last person to leave. That gets you noticed. That gets you... Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, so when there's an opportunity, they're going to give it. That's the tiebreaker, if you will. What can we do to change that work ethic? I don't, not sure of that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not, I've got a bunch of grandkids and... Three, two of them in college. One of them out of college. Others on their way in, and they're um, they're they're good students. And um, but they're just different today. And, and some of it's they come from more affluence than we did. You know, that's part of it, maybe. But um, I think they're just. Um, I, I I'm not quite sure, but I I definitely the thing you can't you can't you shouldn't do is spoil them too much, make it too easy on them so that they're just not gonna feel the the pressure to you know get do something to product be productive and that sort of thing and I think a lot of them will come around they'll just end up growing up and having careers different than what we, the way we grew up that's okay. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for doing this today. Yeah. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have the conversation. And as I've said, uh, these are the types of things that can not only be listened to and enjoyed, but also shared. Because there's a lot of things that have gone on in your life and a lot of messages that you had today that are also important for 
sons and daughters and grandchildren and others. And we hope that that is also something that people get out of these podcasts. So thanks very much for coming yeah. in today. Well, we thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to the Bighorn Podcast. We appreciate all your supportive comments about these episodes that have given you a stronger connection to the people in our community. Our guests have been the stars of our broadcasts, and we look forward to bringing you more of these fascinating stories. And thanks again to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers and AT&T for their continued support of these podcasts in our community. Join us next time for the Bighorn Podcast with fascinating people and their extraordinary stories.